0: Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jet. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Alejandra Dukowski, a professor of history at the University of California, Riverside. Her work focuses on early America, Native America, Spanish borderlands, and the American South. Her first book, in Foreign Power, Communication in the Early American South won the 2016 Michael V.R. Thomason Book Award from the Gulf South Historical Association. Today, she's here to speak with me about her most recent book, Talking Back, Native Women and the Making of the Early South, published by Yale University Press in 2023. The book largely focuses on reconstructing the lives of Native women who lived in and around Spanish Florida in the 17th and early 18th centuries. Through an intensive exploration of Spanish and English English language sources, Dubkovsky brilliantly reveals the formidable women who claimed and used their power to shape the history of the early South. Alejandra Dubkovsky, welcome to the podcast.
0: I'm so happy to be here.
1: Uh, first and foremost, congratulations on the book. Um, I think it is this really powerful and beautifully written uh narrative and engaging argument and it really challenges historians to to not only recognize the presence of native and african women in the colonial era um, but i think also provides a really fascinating roadmap to to kind of historians who want to re-examine maybe some of these more traditional sources in in new ways that kind of allow the voice of women um and not only the voice, but also their lives to kind of come through to the forefront, which is something that, that at least from reading your book, um, isn't always all that easy. Um, so I just really wanted to congratulate you on that. Um, and I thought that maybe a good place to start, uh, is, is the fact that, that this is your second book, um, kind of on this, this general topic, this general area. Um, and I'm always really interested in in how you landed on these topics because it seems like it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult topic to, to uncover and to research, um, through the archive. So would you mind giving us a little bit of background into what drew you to this period of time, to this region, um, kind of colonial Florida, um, and the people that you study?
0: Well, thank you so much. It's such a joy to get to talk about one's work. And this is such a fantastic and f- important region of the world that at least when I started in my, f- my first book 10 years ago, it was deeply kind of understudied. I think now there's more and more exciting historiography on it and more conversations. So it felt like I could begin asking more complicated questions, but also more basic questions of a region because now we knew it more. And honestly, it was a very basic question that I sort of realized when I was studying this region that I, knew, I thought I knew well. I had been studying it for 10 years. I had done archival work. I had done all the cons- consultation. I've done all these things. And then all of a sudden I was stumbled on a document written by a woman. It was a very long document. It's actually what's the last part of my book. And I realized at that moment that I had no idea what women were doing in this space. And that is 50% of the population. So I was sort of like... I was missing half of the world I had been studying and I couldn't answer the most basic questions how many women were there what did they do what did they look like what were they worried about how did they explain it and that was very shocking to me because I thought I'm a good thing. I'm a good scholar I have a good book I have that and I couldn't answer the most basic questions so it was a strange I've been told it was a strange move to turn to gender and women's studies as a second project usually these are people's first project and then they move outward I sort of went fell into it in a very kind of organic way to try to make sense of sources and then it also in a very exciting moment where when i was giving public talks or just talking to people there was such an interest in women's lives people wanted to know more about them and i just fed off that energy and that interest to try to think well, let's see. First of all, I was like, well, it can't be done, right? A book on Native women can't be done. <laughs> there's no sources, there's not sort of, I repeated the same lines that were told to me. And then I thought, well, is is that really, tr- is, is actually that really true? Um, are there in fact no sources? Are there no ways to think critically about them? And I just started to realize that, in fact, there were, there were a lot of sources. And part of the problem is, right, they're hard, they're complicated, and I can talk about, uh, you know, there are multiple languages. You have to work with indigenous language sources. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, so they're not super easy. But they're also right there, too. So there was also a, a moment of, how much is this that the source is impossible? How much is this as as historians not doing all our due diligence to uncover this life? And I think I was really inspired by both of that.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting series of, of, of like responses that elicit some questions from me. You know, you said the sources are there. Um, the evidence is, is there. It, it might be a little complicated to crack and and uncode. You know, so you think then, well, is, is, if it's not a question of sources, it's more a question of us, right? Uh, are we not asking the right questions? Are we not looking for examples of these people? And so do you, do you think that that was kind of at the heart of this, or is it just, it was, it was kind of too complicated to crack that, that people just assumed there was nothing there.
0: I think it's not that complicated. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to say it's just the complication. I think we don't know. And I'll put myself here. When I began this, I thought I was going to be writing a book, a more, um, a different kind of book about sort of military sieges. And I I really like battles, actually. And so I was thinking, I'm going to write about Queen Anne's War. That comes through in the
1: book. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I I really, I think it's really exciting. And I wanted to write sort of this military history of this war. And I had uh, stumbled on this petition for a, a woman. And I thought, oh, are there any mentions of women in this really lengthy, a thousand page like documentation of the siege, which is like a day-by-day account of the siege. And I had read this 1,000 pages before. I had very detailed notes on these 1,000 pages. And I was like, I know there's no women because I've read it all and I'm a good historian and I have got notes. But just for due diligence, I'm going to go back and revisit it. And all of a sudden I was like, there are women in every other page. And I I had not seen them because I wasn't looking for them in war. So there was a moment of realization where... There's actually, in fact, a lot of sources of women, and they're often not in places where we imagine they're going to be, because we have created this imagination of where we think women are. Um, and here they were, not, you know, not carrying. I don't want to give any false advertisements, not carrying weapons, not sort of fighting in the siege, but very much part of the siege moment. And and in fact, so annoying that the Spanish officers are talking about them and writing about them and making military decisions, thinking about them. So I was like, oh, in fact, they are there. Let, where other places have I missed? You know, and all of a sudden it was the conversation we tell our students. You know, if you have a hammer, you go looking for your nails. But I started sort of looking for those nails, and first I thought, oh, they're not there. And then, you know, there were moments where they're not. Their sources are, are slim, and they're hard to find, and I had to do a lot of thinking through them. But there were moments, in fact, where there were a lot of sources and I had to, I was in the plethora of, of like wading through these rather than, Oh, trying to pick out, uh, scraps or fragments.
1: Right. Right. And you know, I, it, this is maybe a horrible analogy to make, but it's kind of like when you buy a car, right? You like buy this new car and you think you're unique. And then all of a sudden you start noticing that car all over the place. <laughs> once you, once you recognize it's something you want to be looking for, you begin to see it popping up uh, in places that perhaps you hadn't previously.
0: Absolutely. But then it's frustrating when, you know, people say, oh, they're not there or they're, they're not, they're not hard. You know, there's not, and it's, that's a conversation about, you know, what is that we're looking for and where do we expect to find and to be open, right? To be open to the fact that there's other things there that we hadn't, we haven't looked for.
1: So above and beyond just this specific book, what was it that drew you to the study of like native history in general?
0: So for me, it was, again, a really simple moment where I, I was doing my dissertation work. I was trying to answer sort of this other question, and I kept encountering Native people in the sources. They just kept popping up, and I kept thinking, I'm not writing about them. I don't want to write about them. I wanted to write about something else, and I kept doing the thing we're not supposed to do. I was saying, okay, they're not important. They keep popping up in the sources, but they're not important. I'm writing about X. And at one point I just said, well, how many of them could there possibly even be? And I remembered I grabbed Powhatan's mantle. This is Peter Wood's like annotated book with many different essays about the early South. And I looked at the demography and I just, I just fell out of my chair. I had been there tens of thousands of people. And I was like, oh, my entire image of this world is wrong. The way I've been populating the early South was not a space when I started this work with indigenous people being even present. And all of a sudden I realized not only are they present, they're the majority of people who are in this world. So if I'm going to narrate what this world is like, I cannot ignore the majority of the people who are populating it. And that was a real shifting moment where I realized I have a I had a lot of work to do. I had to like massively catch up. And then it was just the very basic of sort of following following the sources, following along, and um just this really exciting worlds open up when we take uh, indigenous history really seriously and Me has remained sort of the some of the most exciting uh, developments in actually our profession as a whole, not just the early American South, but in U.S. history as a whole.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think I'm a pretty smart person and I, and I know a little bit about history, you know, and I studied the Jim Crow period. Um, and even when I teach the surveys, it kind of goes like, yeah, here's like these early interactions between European colonizers and native people. And then like, we all know what happens. So, but you know, you kind of like hyper focus on Jamestown or something as if that was the entire world. Uh, and you're like, no, like 99% of the rest of the geographic area, right, is, is, is dominated by native people. And I'm, I'm almost ashamed to admit it, but it wasn't until so. I was in my PhD program. Um, and uh, Juliana Barr was one of the professors that I took a class with who I uh, saw, wrote a little blur for, for your book. So I thought that was great. And um, her whole colonial uh, historiography class is just like Native Histories. And like, whoa, whoa, there, there's a robust scholarship one. And then also just... There are a ton of these native people that continue to exist well into the 18th, 19th century in ways that 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 they are continuously shaping and reshaping how these these European empires are and American empire is kind of playing out um, in North America. I just thought it was this was really eye opening to me,
0: right? Because it's not just that they're there; it's that they have tremendous power about the world that's developing. So it's not about just oh, we want to include more diversity, in our so we just want to understand what this world is happening. And to do that, you. They are the majority. They are the ones holding the the power, and so you have to understand them. And I think that's shifts a little bit how what we think about this world.
1: Yeah, and so I mean, I guess that's kind of a nice segue into my next question, which is still about you know what your interests were and how how you were drawn to them. Um, I was born in and raised in Texas. I was actually just there over this past weekend. Um, and when I think of this idea of Spanish borderlands. Um, that's the region I envision, right? This this kind of Rio Grande kind of area. You've got you've got Spanish influence, you've got American influences, you've got Native influences, all kind of playing out here. Um, and the thing I really appreciated about your book, it seems that you kind of have a different regional focus in terms of your idea of the Spanish borderlands. And as a now Floridian, uh, it almost shames me to not have thought of this before, but you know, you focus on Florida and, and emphasize this as this kind of place that should be thought of as this borderland region. Um, what do you think makes Florida a really good location for exploring this, this kind of history in a borderland region?
0: I mean, Florida, just like I think of Texas, I'm currently situated in California, right? So we think about the long stretch of spaces ahead, um, Spanish incursions into them, California, Texas, New Mexico, and Florida. Florida is the earliest from where they're they're there in the 1500s. The Spanish are there in the 1500s. And very early on, this becomes a site for imperial conflict. So You have lots of different European powers trying to get to this region. So that makes it immediately as a contested European site of of struggle, right? They, the French set up th- very early on. Um, they're they're sort of pushed out, but then the English come in in 1607 with Jamestown. They're they're within this region, and they're talking to each other. They're paying attention to one another. But in the middle of all these are also big, large indigenous groups that are also playing both sides off each other trying to renegotiate spaces with one another. So in many ways, what's happening very early on in the story of Florida in the 1600s, 1700s, is going to have echoes in Texas and New Mexico and eventually much later in California. So you see sort of earlier patterns to stories that then we're going to come to know and the like. And even early paradigms with missionization, Florida has some of the earliest sites of Franciscan missions, in, in the Americas i mean it's it's one of these early case studies about how the missionization and evangelization for native for native groups is, is going on the ground so it's it's a classic sort of early space in which this is occurring but because a lot of the structural items we associate with Spanish missions, like missions themselves made out of brick and with churches and the like that we see in Texas, that we see in California, that we definitely see in New Mexico. There's very few rock. (laughs) There's not a lot of rock in Florida. So it's very hard to create these structures that are going to be preserved. And so a lot of that has is not there so we've sort of washed over and there's much uh, it's a much longer story of Florida Florida enters the United States much later you know so I think other stories are narrated of that and this earlier history just literally is, is, is in the ground and I, I think it's reminding people and refreshing people about how long then layer the stories of these spaces and how contested they actually were um, helps, helps us uh, sort of elongate how much longer and how contested the early U.S. history actually is.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm, I say this as someone who's like I've been to St. Augustine, I've seen the Castillo, you know, and, and still you're just you kind of forget that oh yeah, like this was a heavily contested space and a heavily contested region. And even though it's this peninsula on the eastern side of what is now the United States, it is very much involved in these kind of cross cross border as problematic as that 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 phrase may be, right? Like, um, these interactions, it's contested, there's native people, there's English people, there's some French influence, there's Spanish influence. It's just really, really, uh, important and nuanced history that I think sometimes gets lost in Florida when we think about, about borderlands. Um, so I really appreciated you, you emphasizing that, uh, in the larger work.
0: I mean, I think so much of Borderlands history is about how the United States creates its own history about itself, and oftentimes Borderlands are trying to imagine an earlier European past, like to say, see, there were other Europeans, and eventually, you know, now we're all speaking English, so clearly this other European power, and eventually an American power, won out. So, so much of our Borderlands history is about a distant bygone era that has been supplanted by sort of a U.S. history. But that, again, is about sort of very particular European presences, and those you can see in like the missions or the forts that remain, but not in the actually very large indigenous population that actually define the spaces. So I think because those stories are so buried underneath that we miss them as borderland spaces because we're just thinking, oh, the Spanish were once here and that's what makes them important. When in reality, the Spanish were barely sort of holding on to Florida by their fingertips. And it's in fact this larger indigenous world that's, that's far more central.
1: Absolutely. Uh, okay. So let's get into the book just a little bit. And I always like to start with questions related to the title, because I remember in grad school, that was, you know, we were reading all these books and one of my professors, like the first question I think he asked me when I started was, you know, why do you think the title of the book is the title that it is? And I thought the title, like I didn't even read the title, right? I just jumped right into the book. And then as as you write books, you're like, no, like the title actually matters quite a bit. We think a lot about it. Um, so the title, and I'm not going to get into the subtitle, but you can certainly elaborate on that, um, is Talking back uh and so how did you come to that title and why do you think that that phrase talking back is so significant to what you're trying to accomplish uh in this book
0: Titles are so hard. They are very, very (laughs) hard. They're so hard. And I I really wrestled because a lot of the titles we were throwing back and forth and I was brainstorming about were in the negative, sort of were like not missing, not gone. Um, And I noticed a lot of works that dealt with women were in the negative at titles, sort of sort of to remind you of the, the you know there, there, there's a lot of work negative titles are doing right remind you of the structures of power that are there that our women have to like fight through to break through and I was so uh I was like this is not what I'm finding I'm finding women doing things like I need an active some kind of action that they're doing and so I I really went back and forth with a lot of different things but I when I stumbled on that one um and literally was just brainstorming and thinking and I eventually came out with what do I think these women are doing and I just I was like they're talking back to us, they're talking back through the sources. They're reminding us they're there. They're insisting on their presence. They're making it very difficult for some of these men to to live their lives because they're interrupting a process. And I just thought this is great. They're they're talking back. And I just when I thought that, I thought, oh, this actually is part of the argument of the book. And I really like titles that are the kind of the argument of the book. So it makes it really easy. You're like, what was that book about? Oh, it's about women having agency and power. Good talking yeah. back.
1: <laughs> oh, that's a really good explanation and 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 way more engaging than I thought. You know, yeah. This. This idea of kind of not just understanding their presence in the negative, uh, but it's this affirmative, affirmative statement that you're making, and I think it does really cleverly uh tie into the main arguments there so i think you did a really nice job um so let's get into it a little bit more you you begin the book in the 1690s and it ends in the 1710s and so as as like a historian of the 20th century in the late 19th like this makes sense of course you would only cover 30 years right but for colonial historians this seems uh almost aggressively short in terms of it it's 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 chronological coverage um and so I was just hoping uh, to give you a little bit of time to explain what it is about this, this kind of 20 year period uh, that you think is just so vital for our larger understanding of Native women um, and, and, and African women um, in early America and in the South in particular.
0: I like that. I do think it's aggressively short period of time. I I love that, actually. Um, And, in fact, I have a line that I say, I begin in the 1690s as if I'm starting mid-sentence. And I I did that really purposely. So part of it was a reaction uh, to the way uh, in particular Native uh, Native women, but also just women in general are narrated in the colonial period. Anytime I had to read a book to get background, to get myself situated, I was reading these books that were covering hundreds of years because, and as the introductions would say to me, there's not enough sources. You know, I wanted to write about X, but because there's not enough sources, I had to go from the year 1500 to the year, you know, um, 1900 to write about women. And I was not, first of all, I thought, well, that's what I'm going to have to do, you know, begin with the earliest. Spanish conquistadors or even do archaeological work and and, and span the, the sort of as far forward to get enough materials. And then I was realizing, oh my gosh, I have so much material that this long chronology did not seem Um, necessary and it also to me lost the specificity of the particularities of power women did have because they were so broad in narrating the stories of women and they do and I don't want to dismiss them because they do tremendous amount of work in sort of situating women and narrating them I think of the extraordinary work of Brooke Bowers on Katawa women and she she does this long chronology to sort of make the point of their repeated importance and I thought thank thank goodness works like that exists and do that work. But what happens in these what happens if I want to think about women in the 17th century? And I couldn't find a book that just even focused on those years. And part of it was the argument that there's not enough sources. So I thought, let's see if we can do this, not just as an exercise, but let's see if we can talk about women in any period of time and use sort of gender, use a gender lens, use feminist approaches, use native American and indigenous studies methods, which are in theory supposed to help us unpack any event, Uh, in this this period of time. But so that's like sort of a the the, the challenge. But the, there's also there was also uh not just this was not just like an exercise that I thought randomly like let's see if just I just like randomly. a random
1: 20 year period you're <laughs> like let's just pick you know the 1670 no. to 1690
0: right. So part of it was that part of it's that, uh, that that um, the there was a ch- the sort of intellectual challenge for me but also because I was seeing something occur I was really interested in trying to narrate stories of women not at encounter not at moments where we you know not at the pocahontas moments not at the moments like Malin. In Mexico, where you have sort of imbalance of powers and like, I wanted to talk about a colonial story, like rooted deeply in the colonial world. And so to me, I can't, I, I'm not going to begin right at the moment of beginning of Spanish colonization. We're a hundred years into this, literally by 1690, we're a hundred years into the Spanish being there. So to me, this is a deeply colonial world. The Spanish have been there for a while. There's a lot of the classic canons of colonialism that have taken shape, disease, enslavement, uh, just tremendous amount of violence. That's all, the waves of that are not. No one's new to this by the 1690s. Not not the indigenous people, not the Spanish people. Everyone's sort of familiar and trying to make sense of colonialism. And by the 1720s, uh, you by the by the end of this book, which is the end of the sort of Queen Anne's War, the 1715s, you see sort of a, 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 th- those patterns are sort of entrenched in a clear way. So if in the 1690s what what does colonialism look like is still being kind of up for grabs by the 1710s, you still you see it kind of. So solidify in a, in a strong way. But through all of that, women continue to have an important and tremendous presence. So I, what I wasn't, what I also desperately did not want to write is a story of declension, a story which, oh, in the 1690 women have power in the 1710s. They don't. In fact, I saw women continuously have power. So to me, picking those th- this year was a story of like, how do we narrate colonial women? How do we narrate the colonial period. So let's grab a moment of time of in the in deep colonial history and see what comes out. And so I think it was not just an exercise, but sort of picking a chunk and in this sort of classic colonial moment uh, to see what comes out.
1: Yeah, I thought it was really impressive. And again, just I'm not a colonial scholar, but most of the books I saw were just, like you said, centuries and centuries. And, and I believe the same thing. The argument was in order to do uh, a book on these groups that are seemingly not there, you have you have to have that that long period. Um, but yeah, I thought you did a fantastic job of, of demonstrating like, look, these this again, 50% of the population, uh, they are there, they are present, they are shaping, they are being shaped by. Um, it was really, really well done. Um, so I commend you for doing a colonial history that was only 20 years, which is, is really, really, really impressive. Um, so in the first few paragraphs of the book, you introduced the story of uh, Timuqua, I'm sorry, Timuqua Eve, am I pronouncing that correctly?
0: Timuqua, Timuqua, yeah.
1: Timuqua Eve, uh, and suggest that this story is indicative of the larger roles that Native women played in the early South. Um, so could you just give us a quick overview of that story and how you came across it in the sources?
0: So here's uh, this incredible source. It's from a the Timuqua language is an, an indigenous language of the American South. It's an isolate language, meaning it doesn't have, we don't know, uh, we're still working on its connections to other Muscogeean language like Creek, like Chickasaw Choctaw, uh, but it doesn't have such a, a clear link. I've been working on this language actively since uh, 2012, but really actively since 2020 to the point that I can I can read with help, but I can read, I can read this language. And one of our works was trying to translate these, these, these corpus, this language works that exist in Timuqua. There's a lot of material in the Tumuqua language. In fact, we have a lot of work to do on this language. It is the earliest corpus of a language in what's now the United States. So it's a lot of stuff to be done. They exist in... Uh, texts that are printed in Tumuqua and Spanish. So a lot of these texts are are bilingual by nature. This story is a story of Adam and Eve that appears in Spanish. It's a very classic retelling of the Adam and Eve story in Spanish in which, um, you know, Eve is in paradise and is seduced by the serpent to take a bite of the apple uh, and, you know, doom humanity in the process. And there's a translation of it that follows the Spanish in Tumukwa. And we were working on this, and I say we because I, I run a collaborative work group on the Tumukwa language, and I work primarily with Aaron Broadwell at the University of Florida, but we have a whole team of other people along the way um, that help us and, and do this language from community um, to just people interested in this language. We were working on a translation of this, and all of a sudden, a very, it became very clear that the Tumukwa version of Eve was really different than the Spanish, which is not just surprising. That there's a lot of mistranslation between the Tumuqua and the Spanish, and we've done a lot of work to show that the Tumuqua language side has, is written by Tumuqua people. So what we're seeing in these texts from the 1600s are some of the earliest accounts by Native people written um, down. So we have Native authorship pretty clear, and we've done a lot of work to demonstrate that Native people are writing this. So this Native version of the Adam and Eve story was not surprising that it was different than the Spanish, but it's surprising in very gendered ways. Uh, for example, Tumuqua Eve doesn't just... Take the apple to you know know things her husband doesn't doesn't know, but she takes she takes the apple she says because she wants to be a paracusi paracusi is a really really gendered word it means war chief, not just any chief this this would have been a role only accrued to men so she's transgressing all sorts of norms that are only clear within Temuco's society. like no Spanish reader would have necessarily attuned to that but beyond that she makes it very clear like she has a couple of lines in there that she's like I don't want to be. I don't want my husband to be the boss. So she has even an internal monologue in the Timucua where she's like speaking. And so it was an incredible moment where this this character of Eve was coming to life in a really different way in the Timucua than the Spanish, showing us an active way women were participating in native societies and how if we are going to see a moment of transgression where a woman was doing something she wasn't supposed to do, which... Eat, eat the apple, but in Tumukwa society, the transgression was multi-layered and in different ways. One of them was, you know, this wanting to be a war chief. The other one was sort of the lack of reciprocity. Like she doesn't want to share. She doesn't want to. She doesn't. She she doesn't want to eat um, with her husband, but before him. And all of a sudden, um, it became clear. Well, first, how, how rich this source was. Here's a native-authored source about the Adam and Eve story, in which Tumukwa Eve is just first of all, she's very funny. She's in your face. She's supposed to be kind of comical and that the Spanish are totally missing. So here you begin to see there's these worlds that are operating in front of people's eyes that they are not properly seeing. And some of that is because it's in a native language and you have to do the work to work with native language sources. And the argument really remains entire worlds appear when you engage seriously and ethically with native language materials. Uh, So that became very, very sort of obvious and clear. But the other is just here was the understanding that women did have power and that women had a role in society and that it was working in, in really fantastic ways. And that, in fact, they could narrate it. And the author of this sex is probably male. And so the fact that it was, you know, again, a male author writing this way and understanding the subversive nature of, of, of a woman who wanted to be war chief, to me, hinted at a, a sort of a much larger world that was in front of our eyes that we weren't seeing yeah and
1: for me who you know again i'm not terribly well versed in these histories that you were engaging with um it was i think a really effective kind of tool as as an author to kind of give us one story and you do this in multiple points throughout the book give us one story to kind of wrap our head around that helps us understand the larger processes uh that that you're exposing us to um and i just that 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 helped me out so so much um and i think it does a nice job of of telling the larger story through through one 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 individualized story that we can wrap our head around
0: right um, because the story is one woman who has power I mean at the end of the day that's Taking out all the nuts about the other is like the methods and how we think about it, right? Mm-hmm. To do the work, to analyze the sources, to think through it. So I think it's one story that really is like this is the work that needed to be done to do this kind of job, and the payoff is that you get a badass Tamuqua Eve, you know, saying, "I don't want to be. I want to be the boss. <laughs> I want to be the knower of all things." And that is just ex- like that is, and that's the talking back. You get these native women talking back at you, and we have to listen and we have to include them. And so I think it's like,
1: really. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, that's it. Uh, I was going to say I, th- I think it's really fascinating too that you brought up. The, you know, this is this is written by by a man too. Um, which you know, this isn't just a small cabal of women who are who are telling this story among themselves to kind of um craft this counter narrative. But this this is apparently something that's pretty widely retold, right, within this community uh, among both men and women, which I think is really interesting.
0: And the most hilarious part, right? These these are this is a, a story that's being reprinted that's printed in Spanish and in Timucua. So you would think this little booklet is something the priest will use to tell the Adam and Eve story. So the priest in his... Terrible mispronunciation of the Tamuqua is going to be standing up saying, and then <laughs> instead of saying, you know, Eve is, you know, damning us all, he right. ends up saying Eve wants to be the ruler of all. And, and the hilarity of this, and of course, the priest would have no idea because these texts are produced and translated by Tamuca people. In theory, in his head, he's doing a perfect translation. In reality, so that like the messiness of this all and the funniness, right? The 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 fact that there's humor infused in these like sort of deep moments where you think of like terrible colonial violence, absolutely, but that. There's is an infusion of uh, sort of to try to retell and reclaim some power.
1: Yeah, what a really good point. I mean, you don't think of native people laughing, right? Or like like ever They're people, <laughs> right, right? But you're exactly you're absolutely right. That is such a good point. Um, yeah, they are they are still people. Um, and I wow, that's, that that's a really powerful statement. I think. Um, and and an unsurprising one, even though it is so surprising. Um, so another story that, that that was really drawn to was was um, the story of this Chicago woman um, who was identified as as is it India Chikata um, and you make the point to say that, you know, not much of her life is really well known and she only really enters the archives because of an investigation into her death, um, which as someone who studies criminal justice, you see this again and again, right? We only see people enter the archives when, when they are being, you know, when they have either died or they've been accused of a crime or something like that, which isn't always the best way to understand someone's larger life. But, um, you do a really nice job of kind of basing a larger narrative on what seems to me to be pretty fragmentary evidence. And, and you craft this kind of fairly detailed evaluation of what her life may have been like. Uh, and in many ways, I think this is one of the more interesting aspects of your work. Uh, you kind of challenge historians to evaluate sources in new ways um, and looking for for other voices, um, to kind of highlight those people who are so often overlooked. So could you give us kind of like you just did, um, a quick overview of the story of the India Chikata and, and how you were able to kind of reconstruct her life based off this, this, this kind of one source about her death.
0: Yeah, so this is an incredible trial that happens in 1695, in which a man is accused of murdering a woman. She's not given a name. She's just identified by her, you know, uh, tribal affiliation, Chacato. And she's, you know, rendered feminine because the Spanish is a gender language. So she's an Indian as opposed to an Indio, Chacata as opposed to Chacato. Right, But that's it. She she hardly enters the picture. And, and then the trial is actually, there's like articles to be done on this trial. There's, it has a tremendous amount of information. It's very clear. There's two towns. They've been fighting with each other. The, the trial becomes so much about intertribal politics, especially about the Tumuqua people that live in North uh, so North Florida and the Appalachian people that are they're they're right on a border town. So when we were talking about borderlands, this is a borderland, a space between Appalachian people that live what's near now Tallahassee and Tumuqua people. And this murder occurs at the border, and it becomes clear that this is a larger story, that there's politics involved, that these men have a longer history with one another. And honestly, when I came to this case, I was so fascinated, it's so fantastic that I wrote it all about this these men. And when I workshopped this chapter, I got immediate pushback. Um, in particular, I hear her voice. So Lisa Brooks challenge challenged to me. She said, uh, this chapter is not about this woman. She goes, where is she? and i and i immediately pushed back and i said well she appears like three to three times in the murder cases it's just about this is about the murderer this is about this na- native man named santiago it's all about him and she just kind of paused and looked at me and she said do better and i just remember <laughs> thinking she is right i want to yeah. write about her i don't want to write about the murder and i kept thinking very much in the present day I keep thinking about the epidemic of murder and missing indigenous women and the way we write about them through uh, and and this was really in, infused in the writing here thinking about um, the way we narrate the violence on these people that we don't take, talk about who they are. We just talk about the violence. We talk about the men, often more often men that perpetrate this violence and not about the lives of these women who are suddenly, we are deprived of their their human story because they're taken from us. And even in their death, we're deprived of their human story. We're just, we are just introduced to them through the violence enacted in the last minutes of their life. So I thought surely, surely this this is not the way to narrate this woman. How can I push her story forward and back to think about it? And it's a simple exercise that I I, I remind my students. But just because we meet someone in 1695 doesn't mean they have, she appears in 1695 out of thin air. And this is. True for all of us as historians, just because our actors come to us at these particular moments in the sources doesn't mean, right, that this is in fact when they emerge. Right, they they have existed before, and uh, you know, and most often will continue to exist past this one source. So I think the challenge was how do we narrate the life of a woman who we only meet through violence? And to me, this this truly was a challenge. Which at first I thought, again, this cannot be done. But then in reality, it can. Right, there's enough circumstantial, there's enough evidence about her movements, that different possibilities emerge. There isn't a single one. I wish I could say, yep, I know at first when I found she, you know, she was escaping slave raids because this is an incredible mo- moment. This mur- this woman is murdered on a trail. You can figure out in the direction she was likely going. You you she She talks to the person who likely murdered her or to another person and they record her words. So it becomes very clear she's escaping slave raids. So it's easy to kind of reconstruct some elements of her life beforehand. And I just saw at first when I found the documents of the people being raided from, I'm like, I found her. She's one of these 40. And then I said, I don't know if I found her and I don't know if I I can, you know, I, I, you know. For sure, say I found where this woman comes from, but I can create through her, the echoes of other women's who were captured, who were part of these people that are getting enslaved. So all of a sudden through her murder, many different human voices came to the forefront that existed before this violence. So stories about long colonial forces, right? So this is why it starts in 1690, but really you see the echoes of everything of colonialism to the 1690s. You see the impact of disease. You see the choices our community needs to constantly be making to readjust to the colonial pressures of the Spanish and then eventually the English, and eventually to raids that are coming to take and enslave Native people who are not who are not trading with the English. So you see all of that before she even appears into the Spanish record to die. That's all that existed. And then of course it's the violence that happens after her death and how we record it. And then you know to finish the story, imagining where where do we think she was going? Why do we even think she's going on this path? And when I began sort of this research, I thought. It's winter. She's. I mean, I know it's Florida and it's much warmer, but it's still cold. It's still uh, to be walking through the elements. And I just think, me. I don't know if she can walk this far. And I remember I consulted with a lot of um, people and different um, different tribal members that live in this region. And at first, I was I I began that conversation like I don't know if she could. And I got people immediately were like, that's because you don't know the land. Like immediately, people walked me through their ter- the territory, their territory, their plants, their things that are available. And all of a sudden, something much more. I was like, look at all these possibilities are in front in front of of me that I didn't know. Right. And in, and instead of saying, well, I can't know about her at the end. It's like, let me talk to humans. <laughs> let me talk to Native people who know their land very well. And uh, let me see how they think this story goes. And it was it was super revelatory to think about uh, the different foods she could have potentially eaten, what she was doing. And again, all of a sudden, a much longer story of a woman's presence, not just death and disappearance came to the forefront. So Wow. So yeah. that,
1: that was kind of like an ethnographic. You, you kind of literally could go and Retrace similar steps to this person that appears in the archives hundreds of years ago uh, to kind of get a sense of what that experience might have been like.
0: Yeah, because she's marching in the in the trails in January of 1695. So again, it's not snowing; it's nothing like that. It's 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 a warmer climate. Nevertheless, you know, I'm thinking this is a woman who lived in her community and was likely enslaved by English raiders. And manages to escape, her side. and that's the other thing. Oftentimes, when we think about Indian slavery, we think people get captured, and that's the end of the story. Then they disappear from our records. And not only does she not disappear, right? She 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 fights back against enslavement. She's able to flee. She's not the only one who's able to flee. There's other people in my story that you see escaping uh, Indian slavery. So she already does something unsettling to even our narratives of Indian slavery. And then I was just thinking, but is that even possible? So I, you know, there's there's several trails that exist in this moment of time that are very that you can find and maps and the like, so I could figure out, okay, there's one of four trails. But then I was like, whoo can you even eat anything? I mean, I know I would starve and die, but you know, my survival instincts are low. (laughs) So I said, you know, how many miles could someone walk? You know, what would they be eating? And first it was just to get myself informed. And then all of a sudden it became, yeah, of course I began talking to people and people were like, first they were, I thought my questions were going to be very silly and everyone's going to shut me down. And I very quickly realized people were saying, I think you just don't know the land, you know? And I think if you do your work and I, I kept hearing Lisa's voice, like do better, you know, Fill out all your sources before you say I cannot narrate the stories. Absolutely, and then I was like, "She's right. She's right. Let me do my yeah. work."
1: <laughs> wow, that that that's really powerful. Um, but you, I, I I think what you do a really great job of, um, in addition to just showing that you know women are present, um, which again is both. Unsurprising, but also shocking to hear scholars engage with, you know, in this period of time where, where we're told it's difficult to find their existence. Uh, you also make the case that women helped establish a sense of stability, structure, and possibility for many of these native groups in the region that are undergoing, uh, as you just brought up, like really, really difficult situations and challenges and changes uh, to their lives. So, could you just elaborate a little bit on, on, on how women helped establish this sense of stability and structure?
0: Yeah, I think In the face of me, all these changes, this to me was sort of, again, I was like, am I trying to make a 2023 argument that women matter because I care about women and I want to say they're important. And I think that's, that's a good argument to make. It's a, you know, very basic human argument to make, but then I was, you know, trying to also be the good historians. Like what are my sources telling me? I could, I can make a case to say now we care about women, but I wanted to say did people at the time care in a different way with a different sensitivity in the 17th century sensitivity, but the, was gender something people cared about was women's powers, authority, something people understood or even recognized at the time. The Eve story was the beginning of saying thinking, yeah, people, it's not just that women have power, is that this power is widely acknowledged and recognized. And it was that moment of like the Spanish men are writing to other Spanish men about the authority Native women have. And it was at that moment, there's, there's a moment where it's almost a non, non-story that I have, and I think it's in chapter two, in which there's a town council meeting where a chief wants to be chief and says, I think I should be chief because my mother is so-and-so and my grandmother is so-and-so. And everyone agrees and the Spanish agree and he becomes chief. So it's like the least, like, that's not going to sell any, any, like, that's not the greatest movie of all time. But when I encountered that, I said, wait, what, what just happened? Everyone in this room, that's all men, written by men for men with a male audience understands and acknowledges. And also like Obeys this power of matrilineality. And that was a moment where I'm a, in a deep colonial world. This is the why starting so late. Because this is not a moment where we, we can dismiss and say, Well, this is at the early moments of encounters where everything's being debated. We are a hundred years into this process, we're deep in a colonial period. And here, matrilineality or the idea that the line of succession is going to go through the woman's side, not the man's side, which I've repeated, and I'm sure if we all teach a survey, at some point we say, many southeastern groups were matrilineal. And we sort of repeat this line and we say that means the success. passes through the woman. I don't think I knew what that actually meant. Like, I know I just explained it to you. You, you nod your head. We know what it is, but what does that tangibly mean on the ground? And here it was, here was in 1670 in a town council where everyone agreed, yep, this is the way things go. And I began to realize that this women were holding, even though maybe we don't know this, this, this man who's a chief, Um, his name is Benito we don't know who his mother's name is and we don't know what his grandmother's name is but he's invoking them and everyone else knows right so there's a I began to realize the the stability women are forcing matrilineality as everything else is shifting at this moment of time as disease is impacting population loss as slave raids are challenging the stability of groups to retain to remain in their homelands and they're having to move around they're having either to move into missions or sort of relocate elsewhere one thing that's not going away is matrilineality it's a pillar that's standing very Firm and that is not shaking, and it's not shaking a hundred years into Spanish colonization and decades into English incursions. So I began to realize this is very powerful. Matrilineality is not just oh we structure the way this way at the end. It has real and very tangible approaches. Which if you're an indigenous person who lives in a matrilineal world, you'll be like yeah no duh Alejandra, of course. But this was trying to explain that power that was so clearly being understood by other European. That by uh, by European people at the time, and to me that was very sure shocking. And then you see, oh my gosh, women have this tremendous role in keeping their communities' power structures flowing by the na- by this nature.
1: Yeah. And even just in my simplistic understanding is you kind of think, well, if ever there was a time for men to challenge the centrality of matrilineality, it's, it's in that 100 years when they're interacting with Europeans who, who don't have that same understanding, yet here they are 100 years into it saying, no, 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 this, this still is kind of the fulcrum around which um, our larger society is going to be structured. I think that's really, really powerful.
0: I think there's a, a clear understanding. There's a uh, from a lot of native men that their communities can't survive without women, which mm-hmm. is so simple. Right, but I think right. It, it takes like all of us to be like, oh, right, right. These communities <laughs> can't work. I, I mean, a part of it practicality. Women are the primarily sort of food providers from farming to gathering. They're they're doing the bulk of sort of that work, but also like the the survival of the community cannot exist without women. So. Native men who are in positions of power are understanding this power because they see it affecting them in really tangible ways. So they're like protecting women is not just me sort of expressing a 2023 sensitivity is expressing a, a real necessity for my people to survive and endure. In the 17th century.
1: Yeah, um, so you you kind of shift focus in the second part of the book, and and y- you you kind of focus on Queen Anne's War, um, and you explored in a number of different ways. But I was just hoping you could give us like a quick you know minute or two overview, just for listeners who maybe aren't familiar. Um, what was Queen Anne's War?
0: Yeah, what was Queen Anne's War? When I began doing this, I was like, what? The war? Everyone's like, you're working on which one? Which right, one? There's, right. there's a series of early 18th century wars, right? Before the Big War and the Seven Years' War, before 1763, there's a series of imperial wars. And this one is, is sort of one of the early ones in which you see conflicts in Europe and the redrawing of alliances in Europe have sort of direct impact across the Americas, where you see all of a sudden colonies challenging each other because of conflict that's happening abroad. So you begin to see sort of a spillage and a connection of sort of an imperial world, because what's happening in Europe, though very far away, is now having actual, you know, fighting on the ground in the, in the Americas So I think the Queen Anne's were sort of, even though there's earlier ones, this is sort of like one of the early moments uh, shown out. It's also not a really, in European history, super important and super well understood in American history, especially in North American history, there's very little transfer of territory. Like, everyone fights, but everything kind of settles. <laughs> the dust settles, and everything's exactly the way, uh, when how it started. So it's, it doesn't seem like it has a war that has too much impact, you know? Like, unlike the Seven Years' War that's going to redraw the global map, this one, it just seems like one of many early 18th century conflicts where you see this occurring. It's really interesting, though, to me, because... Some of the the least so Queen Anne's War is the moment of the Deerfield raids, where a lot of New England history, especially can, canon, early America history, where people talk about captivity narratives or anything, I don't know. They close their eyes and imagine any frontier stuff. It's all been really well studied for the North, and the southern fronts are kind of like a question mark. It's not really there. There's no really. There's like I think the last book is from like the 19 teens on on the southern fronts. So part of me is. By focusing on this war, it's like, look, the, this gigantic Southern world is definitely part of this colonial world. Too. It's not an offshoot. It's not doing its own thing on the side. So I think it's, to me, it's like, I didn't want to talk about necessarily Deerfield, but I wanted to talk about the stuff that's going on, that this imperial world that's shaping in Europe have, is having tangible also effects in the in the Americas and in the American South. So um, it's a war that sees a lot of fronts actually open up between the English and the Spanish throughout the American South with massive battles and, and attacks that have been sort of poorly, poorly documented and studied. And to me, that felt like a real opportunity to say, look at this like colonial imperial world. Where are women in this story.
1: Right, right. OK, so along those lines, um, why do you think and I'm not being dismissive here, so please don't think that. Um, but like, why do you think it's important to understand women's experiences um, during and after this war? And how do you think that that changes our general understanding uh, of this this period of history?
0: Yeah, I think there, I think especially when we think about early 18th century, this is the Queen Anne's War is fought between, at least in, in the American South, that sort of begins in 1702, where the war begins, like you, you start seeing these battles in the American South, i will go through um, the end of the war through the 17-teens. Uh, the parameters are sort of broad like that. So but so I'm saying very early 18th century warfare, uh, however you want to imagine it with sort of weaponry that's very faulty, with you know uh, uh, a lot of disease and, and proper housing conditions, we we often gender that very male. We Often we gender all our wars very, very male. And, and that's definitely sort of true in, in some features and in some, especially some more contemporary warfares. Um, there's not... The warfare at this point of time is not rendered very male. Not that women, again, are carrying weapons, but that they're there in the sieges. They're they're there next to the armies. They're there experiencing the war itself. So to me, it was about um, not so much describing the siege, but describing the experience. What does it mean to all of a sudden you're in this colonial world, but now everything that had been dispersed, that you had native people over here, that you had a complicated Spanish society, now everyone's in this tiny little... Tiny, tiny little space all having to live together literally
1: right they like literally. retreat to the castillo in san augustine and they're, they're literally inside. in a very very small space
0: they're in a siege so 1702 is a siege the the english from south carolina send a massive army to attack this fort um uh, and this becomes like a classic kind of battle european battle of like sieging and warfare and all this stuff and again when i close my eyes and think of that i never think women are there, or if I do there, it's just one person, you know, one woman who is dressed in a, you know, and has dressed in male attire to take the lead, and in reality there's a lot of women who are there, because they're now, they're the civilians caught in the wake of the fighting, and also in the 18th century, I'm not entirely sure the civilian war, this st- distinction that everyone is part of this 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 warfare, especially very early on in the 18th century, so part of it is re- reshifting the fact that we think of war as very male, in reality, in this moment of time, it's involving a whole slew of people that are being um, involved in it whether they want to or not whether they want to carry arms uh for it or not are there and this is actually very true of all warfare right that we think of warfare as just a battle when in reality warfare is about it's about the battles and everything else that comes before and after and and women today and uh in the 17th and 18th century are definitely part of all those spaces so to me it was that that's why that's what they're doing there
1: and you make this really interesting argument about how women, even though they're they're, they're not taking up arms, um, are kind of shaping how the Spanish leaders in St. Augustine are responding to what's going on on the ground. Um, I think, I, I don't know how sustained it was, but you talk about these women who were kind of engaged in this like, uh, like, like wailing almost like, like for a very, very long period of time. And so in, in his note, right, the, the, the Spanish commander is, is kind of referencing this and it's shaping how he is directing the warfare. Could you elaborate on, on that just a little bit? Yeah,
0: there's this, this incredible story in the siege that when I read it, I just, I thought, this isn't real. <laughs> like, this, this didn't happen. In which the governor is trying to, he's waiting for, re- it's a siege, right? So the, the whoever's going to get re- reinforcements is going to win the siege. So the English are waiting on the outside of the fort. The Spanish are waiting in the inside of the fort. And the Spanish are desperately waiting from someone, from somewhere, hopefully from Cuba to come and aid them. The first ships that come, unfortunately, are English. And so the Spanish think they're done for This is the end of it all. They actually come on Christmas Eve. So it's like a very terrible moment in which everyone's like massively depressed. This is an important holy day. This is a Catholic space. You know, they're trying to figure out how they're going to do mass and all that stuff within that. And then the word gets out that these ships, these English ships have landed. And likely this is all over. This was all for naught. And within a day, another ship is spotted. And there's a lot of... fear that the ship is coming from Jamaica. This is coming with this sort of a dreaded kind of weaponry that could pierce the fortification. And the governor is trying to... Just figure out, right? They're trying to figure out what the ship is. The ship is not flying its colors. It's a standard because they don't want to be, they don't know who's, the ship doesn't know who's in the fort. So this ship is actually from Cuba. They don't know if the the Spanish are in the fort or who's in the fort. So they don't also want to be advertising, hey, we're coming for you. And the English have already taken the fort. So they're trying to figure out who it is. And the women are, in his view, are freaking out. (laughs) They're screaming. They're so loud that he can't focus. So he says, I had to issue a formal edict of, uh, of silence. So he <laughs> has to issue an order. It's issued. Uh-huh. It's in the documentation where he's, he said, basically I had to tell the woman to shut up so I could concentrate. And that's an incredible moment where you think, Oh, you can think, Oh my gosh, these women were so loud. He couldn't focus. But the, the you begin to realize also like, how complicated, how compact the space is, but also that these men are performing their military duties with a very, very clear gender audience. He's having to make decisions as people are watching. And a lot of the people who are watching are women. And he's thinking, what are they going to do? What are they going to say? How can I react? Not that he's like, oh, they're going to hurt my feelings if they don't like me. But if they panic, right, if they panic, if they do things that are not, they could jeopardize an operation. So he's having to take into account these women because they're in this tight space in a way he doesn't He doesn't like to, and it's incredible to me because the second he realizes the ships are Spanish, the second he realizes he can launch a military offensive, the women kind of disappear. The second he realizes he's safe. And so you begin to see when and how women matter, right? So it's not the argument that they always matter and the the Spanish leaders are making military decisions based on women. No, but that they can interrupt the process at critical moments. And in fact, when we're trying to think about how do people experience warfare, we need to think about women as well. So that's sort of what becomes very clear from this story.
1: Yeah, I thought it was a really telling story. Um, again, when we think about warfare, it's like, well, well, men are leading other men and they're directing formations and flanks and whatnot, but they're also having to respond in this particular moment to the gendered audience and the women who are there who are responding to what these men are doing uh, on the field. I thought it was really, really powerful. Um, okay. So the final chapter of the book, again, you kind of focus on on an important woman um, or a woman who's, whose life you think tells us important stories. And in and, and this case, you actually uh, actually look at a wealthy Spanish woman um, named Doña Juana Caravina, um, And she was from one of the most powerful Spanish families in Florida. They had a pretty long legacy there, and, and they had been, been wealthy and powerful. Yet her, her life was upended by Queen Anne's war. Um, and more importantly, and I think this is where it gets interesting in your book, uh, interpretations of her life. Um, um, from both Spanish and Native perspectives um, provide really interesting insight, I think, into uh, your archival process and also what these competing narratives um, could look like. So could you give us a little bit of an idea of, of, of who she was and how her life was viewed differently by Spanish and Native people and, and why that matters so much?
0: So I encountered this document about this woman whose name is Doña Juana. So even the Doña gives you the title, the Spanish title, that you know that she's a sort of a wealthy, elite, respected woman. And it's really long. There's a lot of other petitions by women from St. Augustine. They're, they're, they're about two pages. Hers is a hundred pages. So there's, there's, I was like, I, I, that's how I began this project. She's the source that I found that I thought oh, I got to get at least a conference paper out of these a hundred pages. I thought, I never thought a book. Um, and I began reading. And when I began, when I encountered a source, a hundred pages on this Spanish woman, that's living this life during, and you know, survives in t- tragic you know t- tons of tragedy happens away but survives where i thought there's my story i'm gonna write about this awesome spanish woman who can uh, you know, overcomes all the odds and the more i learned about her i was like she is awful she <laughs> sucks she sucks there's no other way of me saying she's terrible and all was of that a your minute, conference
1: paper title
0: she sucks No, my, my conference paper was like there's women the South. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just realized they were there, uh, and uh, yeah, that's a whole other story. Me, me realizing the complexities of these stories. So, but I begin to realize this document again. There's many, much more work to be done in it. It's 100 pages narrating a geography of her life, her, her people. Her own voice is very small within it. It's like 15 interviews of men who all sort of talk about how important she is in her life, and it's basically a petition for money because she has lost all her property as a result of the war. Now. What was interesting to me when I began trying to narrate her, I began, okay, this is a chapter about sort of elite women and power. And I, I, and again, there's a lot of, um, native women in my book, but I was like, okay, but this one, I don't know how this woman fits in this story. I don't want to ignore her, but I, so I really, first I was like, I don't know if I want to have a chapter on a, an elite Spanish woman, finish a book on native women. And then I began to realize, um, that she also has these incredible moments where she enters the archive, uh, sometimes out of her own will, sometimes against her own will, this elite Spanish woman enters the archive. So there is her own petition and her own rendering of who she is and why she matters. And there's these three other moments where Native people themselves narrate her into, and they really complicate I say that's a nice way. They really refute her own telling of the story. They show us um, how, you know, class and gender... are, and race are really operating in, in really deep intersectional ways. In ways we know, right? We know that you know, if she's a, she's a woman, but she's also Spaniard, and she has these privileges of money, and that's going to render her different than a native woman. Even though they're both experiencing several things together f- from their gender, their realities are going to be very different. And I think her story and the fact that she narrates something about who she is, right? There's this incredible moment here. We have early 18th century a woman narrating her own life story in really powerful, articulate ways. And then Native people undermining her story and reminding us over and over again that this version of femininity, that this version of gender is one that tries, that's, first of all, built on top of suppressing and oppressing other women, in particular Native women, uh, but also then that silences and lets us not see the other women. And to me, this was a moment where we often bemoan the lack of sources, but when I have a lot of sources, they're actually doing silencing work themselves and silencing Native people, right? So we have a lot of voices of Spanish women, much more than I even thought. Up. We're, we're there from St. Augustine. But they do a very active silencing. As I was trying to narrate them, you realize, oh my goodness, they're actively dismissing all these other people. And Juana Caterina in particular, there's this extraordinary testimony that I found. And it literally, this was a sort of archival find that was extraordinary, where um, there's a document that's like stuffed inside something else. And I was like, what the heck is this? And this was basically a secret report that got filed in the wrong place. So, really, a truly like find uh, in which a woman approaches a native woman. That's not named approaches a Spanish officer and tells the story of her child being murdered by the Spanish woman. And it is, it is a, Got wrenching uh testimony. I spent a lot of time, well, crying and then also thinking through it. And I, I didn't know how to properly narrate it in ways that I wasn't just enacting violence on this woman again and again. But I was so taken aback that she wanted to tell the story of her child's death. Like she rushed the Spanish official, basically held them down by the arm and said, I gotta tell you what this woman did to my child. And the fact that she was doing this, that this was not something that she was like forced to confess or come up with, that she went up. I felt very much like I gotta take her lead. I got to take her at her word and tell the story. And it so undermines, it very, not undermines, but it really shows the power that the Spanish elite have. And especially even Spanish elite women have how it's based on sort of the expectation of, of native labor and native native people themselves. Absolutely.
1: Um, well, to not end on such a sour note, although that, that is an important story, um, as a whole, what is it you hope people take away from this book when they, when they read the conclusion, they close it, um, and sit down and think about what they've just read?
0: Oh, well, I mean, the very basic one about sort of the fact that women are there. And that I think, I mean, I really wish that we were somewhere else and I like in the historiography and we could be like, oh, Alejandro that's a really silly point. But I felt, I felt like this book matters because of that. Because if people can come and build on and then say, oh, Alejandra's missed this, all this other stuff, but can build on the fact that I've already said, you know, they're there and they, they really matter. Um, that's that's a way forward. So that, and that beyond that they're there, um, that their voices uh we're shaping this world and have echoes to today, right? This woman was demanding that we think about how her child is abused and eventually murdered that these women now who are demanding their voices be heard, right? The legislation that's being passed right now to make us accountable for the violence against native women has been a long time fight and that native people themselves, and in particular native women themselves have been at the vanguard of that. And while it's really great that more and more of us are involved and have a voice, like, keep pushing their stories at the front at the front line cuz i think th- they tell us something new about this world and they they populate it with so much possibility and, and and resilience that's just extraordinary
1: absolutely uh well it's a really really powerful book it's worth the read there's so much more in it that we didn't get a chance to touch on today but um the book again is talking back native women and the making of the early south and it's published by yale university press uh Dubkowski, dubkovsky thank you so much for coming on the podcast
0: thank you so much
1: And thank you for listening to new books in the American South.